A few uh, weeks ago, I was having a kind of a hallway conversation with a group of folks at Hillcrest, and we were talking about American presidents. I studied history uh, for a long time and find that area of social science very fulfilling. And uh, we got into a discussion about effective presidents, so forth and so on. And I looked at one of the ladies who was in the uh, conversation with us. And I said, well, I'm just interested. Who is your favorite American president? Without batting an eye, she said, Polk. That's what I did. I just kind of looked at her for a minute. Polk, James K. Polk. And immediately, I was impressed with her because I knew that she knew something that 99.9% of Americans have no clue about, namely, that James K. Polk was, in actuality, one of the most effective presidents in the history of the United States. He's the most effective president you never heard of. And many Americans probably don't even know the name, much less that he was a president of the United States, one of only three from the great state of Tennessee. Somebody say amen. That would have made him effective regardless of what he did in office, amen. But he was very effective, and you know why? I mean, American historians look at James K. Polk, and they rank him in their annual surveys of greatest American presidents, always in the top tier. You can look there today, and you'll find him. The most recent one I looked at, he was listed 18th in recent years. He's been listed as high as 12th out of 45 American presidents. I'd say that's a pretty good report card. You know why he's there? Only served one term, and that was intentional on his part. He went in with four stated goals. This was a man who knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish. He knew exactly how long he had to accomplish it, and he only identified four things. He wanted to reduce the federal tariff, opening up imports to the growing rest of the world. He wanted to establish what is now known as the Federal Reserve, a central bank of the United States. Up until the time of Polk, uh, federal dollars were housed in private banks, just like you and I did. He wanted to end that practice and have what we call today a Federal Reserve. And then he wanted to annex the Oregon Territory from Great Britain, who owned it at the time. And the fourth thing he wanted to do was to annex California, held at the time by Mexico. And over a period of four short years, here's a man that extended the territory of the United States all the way to the Pacific Ocean, established a system that we know now as the Federal Reserve, and opened up the economy to all kinds of imports at a lower cost to those who were doing business with the United States. He accomplished every bit of that in four years, averaging three to four hours of sleep a night every night. And he left feeling a great sense of accomplishment at having accomplished all of his stated goals. And so overworked and so tired was he that by the time he got back to Nashville, Tennessee to set up retirement, Within three months, he literally dropped dead of absolute exhaustion. The question that I want to raise this morning is, whose goals are you chasing? Setting goals and <clears throat> making plans is wise. It's good and it's important. And you ought to set them and you ought to pursue them. But the question on the table today is very clear. Whose goals are they? Whose goals are are you chasing? 
And for those of us who follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we are to pursue a different kind of goal and we're to pursue them with a different kind of attitude and with an altogether different motive. This is the very subject that James is addressing as he concludes his teaching here in chapter four on the characteristics of what makes for a friend of God. This is a very familiar passage. Many of you will recognize it. Those of you that can, I'm gonna invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's holy word. I'm gonna begin reading in chapter four, verse 13 this morning. If you're all ready to read, would you say amen? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, we come into your presence this morning thanking you for the privilege of being the people of God gathered in the name of God in order to worship the true and living God, the God of the living. And we praise you today, Father, for the privilege that worship is to us. And we thank you today, Father, for the incredible word of God that teaches us how to live in the kingdom differently with different goals, different aspirations, different motives, with a completely different worldview from our friends and neighbors who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. May this add to our understanding today of who we are, who you are, and how we can live in order to please God. We ask it in the strong name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church family. You uh, may be seated. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> James begins with two words here that are a stylistic device designed to capture our attention. They are the words, come now. If we were watching ESPN on a Saturday night, those guys who do the commenting on football games would say, come on, man. And what he's trying to do is to correct a wrong that he has observed. Come now, come on. What are you doing and why are you doing it? And I think the key to understanding this paragraph lies in the statement that he makes here in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Once again, we've got James speaking very directly. I want you to repeat after me. James is great but James is hard. And here we go again. You're adulterers, you're sinners who ought to be weeping and wailing. And now he just kind of gets in our face and he says, you're a bunch of arrogant braggarts. And that fundamentally underlines the, underlies the problem here. He says, all such boasting is evil. Now to be sure, not all kinds of boasting is evil. All of this kind of boasting was evil. But the question is, what are you boasting in? You can actually boast in 
a way that's good and in a way that's proper. You can boast in the Lord. The Bible says that's actually a good thing. Bragging about Jesus is not a bad thing at all. Isn't that right? So we can boast in the Lord. We can boast in the goodness of God. We can boast in the blessing of the Lord. We can uh, boast in the power of God in our times of weakness. In fact, we can even boast in weakness itself, just like Paul did, because he knew that it was in his time of weakness that God would display his power through his life most magnificently. And so the question is, what are you boasting in? It's a problem when you're boasting in you and when you're boasting in your own ability and your own ingenuity, when you go your own way and chart your own course and navigate your own ways. If God didn't even exist at all, that's a form of what the Greeks called hubris. It's arrogant pride demonstrated by an arrogant boasting, and that's what James criticizes here at the end of chapter 4, this boastful arrogance where we acknowledge God publicly. Remember, James writing to church people. He's writing to his scattered church. And very often as the people of God, it's easy to acknowledge God publicly, but to deny God practically. Does that make sense? So we can talk a great religious game, but live as if God isn't really there at all. And that's the problem James has. Thankfully, he's once again very helpful in showing us how to avoid that kind of what he calls double-mindedness. That's what double-mindedness is, trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom at the same time. Bragging about God on the one hand, but living in a way that implies a boastfulness in your own self and your own abilities. That's double-mindedness, and James wants no part of it, particularly as it relates to how we set goals and how we plan for the future. So what James is going to do is give us three bits of very practical counsel. Again, James is known for his practical helpfulness in his grassroots theology and helping us take these lofty theological, lofty theological principles and bring them down uh, to the grassroots level so that we can actually put them in a pr in, into practice in a way that's influential, in a way that makes a difference in our life, in our family's life, and in the lives of the greater world around us. The first bit of practical counsel he gives us today is this. Never plan your next steps without seeking God first. Never plan next steps without first seeking the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 13. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Business travel was not an uncommon thing at all, even in the first century. James is writing during a period of time where there was growing commercial activity throughout much of the Roman world. I mean, burgeoning out from Rome itself all across the empire, trade routes were opening up and people were coming and going and more money was changing hands than ever before up to this period of time. You can see that reflected in the growth of incredible population centers at the time of the Apostle James, places like Antioch and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth, great cities that had become commercial centers. And the picture James draws here of somebody, a business person of some kind, setting down, spreading a map out on a big desk, business reports in front of him, and he's trying to determine where am I going to go, when I'm going to go there, how long am I going to stay, what product am I going to market. So he's dreaming of making a killing financially along the way. And let me just say this morning, hear me clearly, there is nothing wrong with any of that. 
James is not making an argument against planning. In fact, the Bible would teach that you ought to be a planner, that you ought to think ahead. He's not against planning. He's not against making a profit. In fact, I would go to the other extreme and say most of the people I know take this laissez-faire, lackadaisical, que-sera-sera-sera attitude to life with no plan whatsoever in mind. And the Bible, particularly in the book of Proverbs, would couch that kind of approach to life basically as not wise, but what? Foolish, that's right. Um, But Jesus was very clear. In fact, Jesus was clear about the importance of setting down and first counting the cost. Do you remember that language, Luke chapter 14? What king doesn't first set down and count the cost before he goes to battle? Or what architect doesn't first set down and count the cost before he builds a great tower? No, what James is criticizing, not planning itself, but the attitude that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ bring to our planning. It ought to be a different kind of planning. Planning that leaves God out is planning that James is highly critical of. Not planning itself, but planning that forgets about God. Somebody once said, if you want to give God a good laugh, just hand him your plans. Amen. And yet that's what a lot of people do, especially when it's associated with things surrounding money, my financial future. That's the thing about wealth and why the Bible so often cautions us against this undue emphasis on money and the things money can buy. Because unlike anything else, wealth can foster this incredible sense of independence, personal pride. The more you have of it, the more distant you tend to become from God himself, the less you tend to communicate with God the less you tend to seek God or inquire of God or seek God's counsel regarding your own future. Craig Blomberg, in his little book on Galatia, or on um, James, calls this an arrogant autonomy. Arrogant autonomy. And I think that's a great way to describe it. The people that James mentions here were making their plans, structuring a future with no thought of the Lord whatsoever. They weren't even giving God a nod. Did you notice the language? We will go. We will spend, we will trade, we will make a profit. There's no thought about whether or not those plans might even be wise. No thought about what God might want if they mesh with the greater will of God. This is what James would call earthly wisdom, not heavenly wisdom. It's an arrogant autonomy. The right approach to goal setting and planning, the right approach to seeking an appropriate future is reflected in verse 15. Instead is the key word there. So he says in verse 13, come on those who uh, say today or tomorrow, here's what we're going to do. And then in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. You see the difference? Say amen this morning. See, planning is a good thing. Planning is a wise thing. But every believer who follows after Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord ought to first seek God's heart and first seek God's direction whenever you're making any kind of plan, whether it's a business venture, as James is mentioning here, anything else for that matter. You need to seek God first when it comes time to buy a home. Amen. 
You need to seek God first when it comes time to buy a car. And let me just say, if you seek God first before you buy a car, you might try to find one that's $300 a month as opposed to $700 a month. Amen. Seek God first. Seek God first in your education plans. I talk to teenagers all the time, kind of confused about what they're supposed to do with the rest of their life, where they're supposed to go to school, if they're supposed to go to school. And I'll look at them many times and I'll say, well, what do you think God thinks about the situation? And if I had fallen off a spaceship from Mars, they couldn't look at me more quizzically. They hadn't thought about that. Oh, maybe I should ask God. Oh, maybe. That's a good place to start, right? Or whatever the case might be. Relationships, marriage, big things, even the not so big things. The Bible says it. Jesus said it. Seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that pertains to things related to our future as well. Seek God first with respect to your planning and he will make your paths straight. Amen. So this is what James is counseling here today. Leave room, seek first the kingdom. And listen, here's the thing. When you seek first the kingdom, you always leave room for God to redirect according to his will. And see, if you learn to do that, this is how you'll end up never being disappointed with what God does or does not do in life. Many of us have been incredibly disappointed when things didn't work out the way that we had planned them, when our future didn't end up the way that we had designed it four years ago, five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. It didn't happen <clears throat> like we thought it would because God kind of moved the goalpost on us a little bit. Well, here's the thing. If you're actively seeking the Lord, if this becomes your mantra in life, you say, if the Lord's will uh, is this, we will live and do this or that. You'll never end up disappointed because that's a recognition of the sovereignty of God. Let me ask you a question this morning that I've asked a million times before. Do you all really believe that God is in control? Well, see, if you really believe that God is in control, that he's a sovereign God and you're not sovereign, you're finite, if you really believe that and you seek the Lord's will with every part of your life for every plan in your life, then it's okay if God occasionally moves the goalpost. Because by moving the goalposts, we understand he's really at work to get us to a better place with a better result. Maybe not better as we would define better, but better for us in terms of kingdom life and kingdom living. And so don't be, make your plans, set your goals, but always do them with a spiritual covering, seeking the Lord's will and wanting the Lord's will more than you want your own will. And that's the real problem, isn't it? Because we want what we think we want. Man, I look back on some of the things that I, I, I thought were best for me in my life over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And I'm telling you, when I realize how differently in a negative way my life would have been, I drop to my knees and say, thank you, God, you didn't listen to that foolish voice of mine 20, 30, 40 years ago. Because I had no clue what I was asking you to do. And so when you're really seeking the Lord's heart, seeking the Lord's will, and God redirects you in a different kind of way, it's okay. Listen, I plan my preaching a year in advance most years. I know what I'm doing the rest of the year. At least I've got it on paper. But most every year, you know what God does? He rolls a hand grenade into my study downstairs, and it blows the whole thing up. 
and I have to redirect and punt this and rethink this and go a different direction, happens every year. I still do my planning because I think that's just good, good stewardship of, of time. I don't want to be captive to what preachers call Saturday night specials. <laughs> Staying up late at night trying to figure out what am I going to preach, you know, eight hours from now. You don't want that. So planning brings freedom. So plan, but just leave room for God to accomplish his purpose and leave room for God to accomplish his will. That's what the Apostle Paul did many times in the book of Acts. He expresses his submission to the Lord's will. Acts 18, 21, for example. But on taking leave of the Ephesians, Paul said, I will return to you. And then what are the next three words? What? If God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. That happened on his second missionary journey, by the way. When Paul, I'm convinced, was bound to determine he was going to go from South Galatia straightway into Ephesus because he knew that was a population center. Only couldn't get there. There was a roadblock. His plans got scuttled. We're not told why. We're not told how. But the, the Lord hindered them from going into Asia, the Bible says, where Ephesus was. So Paul says, okay, it's not Ephesus, it's Bithynia. So they turn radically to the right. They go straight north toward Bithynia. They can't get there. Lord closes another door. Plan number two, busted wide open. And then they make their way further to the west, to the coastal city of Troas there on the Aegean Sea. And the Lord shows up right in the middle of the middle of the night. A Macedonian man came to Paul in a vision saying, come over here. It's Macedonia. It's not Ephesus. It's not Bithynia like you thought it was. And Paul took the gospel to Macedonia for the very first time into the continent of Europe and established the church there. And we're the direct, forebear, we're the direct ancestors of that great incursion. All because Paul was willing to simply say, these are my plans if the Lord's willing. So make those plans. There's plenty to plan, plenty to do, plenty to accomplish. Let me give you a word of counsel. Are you still listening? Say amen. Write your plans in pencil. Write it in pencil. Write them humbly. Write them prayerfully. Demonstrating your own finiteness. Demonstrating dependence on the sovereignty and the power and the authority of Almighty God. And be willing to be flexible if God moves the goalposts, because he often will. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord, and let all God's people say, amen. And speaking of our own finiteness, James would remind us, too, never to presume on the future. Never presume to know the future. Never take your next steps without seeking God. Never presume to know the future. And the reason we're to never plan our next steps without seeking God is because it's impossible to know the future. And it's impossible for you and me to predict the future. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are what? You are missed that appears for a little time and then what? Vanishes. This is James' way of saying, how can you possibly hope to know the future when your life is but a vapor? I mean, that's a word, mist can be translated vapor. It can even be translated smoke. All of those are things that appear, but only for seconds. Like your breath this morning. 
as you walked out of your house. You could actually see it. But you couldn't see it for long because it wasn't there for very long. Smoke rises from a campfire, gone. Steam rises from a tea kettle, gone. Dew settles on the ground. Next moment, it's all gone. That's a description of life. That is life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Here one minute, gone the next. You know what the last major comet to be visible to the naked eye on planet Earth was? The Hale-Bopp Comet. Anybody in the room remember the Hale-Bopp Comet? 1997. I mean, it was a big deal because it came out of nowhere. It was a late discovered comet. And it was almost on us before they'd even realized that it was there. And I remember that Judy and I watched that comet one night snake across the night sky when we were on a retreat in Nashville, Tennessee, 1997. We were at a meeting in Nashville, but we stole away one night and I took my wife out on a hot date. Somebody say amen. I took her down to Lower Broadway in Nashville. Many of you have been to Lower Broad, all the lights and the honky-tonks, but there's a really nice restaurant there called the Merchant's Restaurant. It's in an old converted building. And they took us up, I made a reservation, and they took us up the second floor of the merchants and set us on the wall with a little narrow window right there. I'd totally forgotten about that comet until at one moment I just kind of glanced out the window and had a perfect vision of the blackness of the night sky, and there it was, and it was very clear that something was moving. And at first I thought it was an airplane, and I thought, no, an airplane doesn't have a tail. And that thing was just snaking across the night sky. And I said, look, honey, there's the Hale-Bopp Comet. It's right there. I'd forgotten all about it. And we just sat there as our food got cold because we didn't want to miss it because we realized this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I didn't know when the next time that thing was coming around. And we just sat there and we watched that thing snake across the darkness of the night sky until we ran out of window and we went back to our meal. I didn't see many hands go up. Don't worry about it. Hell, Bop is coming around again in the year 4526. <laughs> so hopefully you'll make it another two and a half millennium to be able to see it next time. See, that's a picture of our life, isn't it? Visible, but only for a moment, like a vapor, then no more. That was the perspective of our friend Job all the way through the book that bears his name. He says things like, remember that my life is but a breath. He says, for our days on earth are but a shadow. He says in chapter 9, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Anybody relate to that today? Amen. Isaiah reminds us, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. This is why it's so important to maximize your life, to make every moment count, to never waste a moment of the precious time that God gives us. Jesus told a parable in the 12th chapter of Luke about a man who made his plans and made his fortune like many of these business people that James was addressing, there was a man in the teaching ministry of Jesus that had done the same thing. He'd made his plans. He'd made his business ventures. 
He'd gone hither and yon and he'd made his fortune and it kept stockpiling things to the point where he had to keep building barn after barn after barn. You all remember this story? He had to build one barn and then he had to build a second barn and then he had to build a third barn because he had to have places to store all the wonderful products of his personal wealth. And the man observed it all at one point with great pride, his own personal success. And he says there in the 12th chapter of Luke, behold, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And what's the next word out of his mouth? Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, what? God said to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. That man was doing all this planning, not having any idea that he wasn't going to live to see the sun rise the next day before the Lord would call him to stand face to face with him. Now, most people would look at that man in his life and say, what a great success. But God looks at him and says, what a foolish man you've been. Ergo, what a failure. Why? Because this was a man that presumed to know the future. He presumed to know what only God can know. And because he, had, he thought he had infinite amounts of time, he ended up building his life on all the wrong things. I've known many people like that in my time. They all thought they had more time. And the younger you are, the more immortal you think you are. We have this tendency to think we're going to live forever, particularly in when we're in our 20s and, and 30s. And yet none of us knows what night the Lord will require our very soul. And that's why we have to live with the end in mind. The world tells us to live as if we're going to be here forever. But the Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring, Proverbs 27. Live as though the world is passing away, for it is. And live for the kingdom and live for the glory of God. That's what James is reminding his church makes for a truly successful life. Well, are y'all with me so far? Say amen. Gotta land a plane this morning. I'm gonna do it by telling you a third thing here. As we're humbly seeking God, trying to determine God's plan for the next steps that we take in life, realizing that only God holds the keys to our life and the keys to the future. James would remind us of a third practicality that we need to keep in mind today, and that is never procrastinate when it comes to doing the right thing. Never procrastinate when it comes to doing the right thing. Most of you know, there are probably a lot of people in the room struggle with procrastination. Amen. Uh, that's a killer. When it comes to productivity, when it comes to personal performance, when it comes to life and just about every dimension, athletics, business, education, whatever the case might be, ministry, procrastination is a killer. Yeah, I mean, it's a killer. It affects output. It affects achievement. It affects grades in the classroom. It affects promotions at work. Social scientists tell us it can even mess with your psychological development if you're not careful. And so many struggle with it. I'm amazed at how many people struggle with it. 
In fact, I was going to bring you a video about procrastination that's really good to show you, but I thought I, I'll just wait for another time to do it. <laughs> but listen, procrastination is also a major spiritual problem that can significantly impair your growth as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 here in James 4. He concludes by saying, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is what? Say it out loud. It is sin. See, the thing about procrastination, it's not that you don't know what to do. You know what to do, you just don't want to do it, right? Ostensibly because it's hard or because you're afraid. There's either a fear factor or there's a difficulty factor. And that's what causes us to step back and to put off until tomorrow, if tomorrow ever comes, what wisdom would say we ought to be doing right now. And that can be true in your own spiritual life. For the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, in other words, procrastinate, uh, procrastinates about it, for him, that's the very definition of sin. So this is a statement about failing to act in ways you know you should. And we normally don't think of sin in those terms. We normally think of sin in terms of, of doing something that God has commanded us not to do. Isn't that right? All the thou shalt nots of the Bible. If you do what God said thou shalt not do, then that's an overt action of sin, and we understand that. We call those sins of commission, right? Things that we do that God has told us that we shouldn't be doing. But here's the thing. Here's what James is saying here as a sobering reminder. Just as serious as those times where God clearly tells us to do something and we fail to do it, that's just as serious a sin to God as the other way around. Now, these are sometimes called sins of omission. Sins of commission involve us doing things that God has told us not to do. Sins of omission, uh, take that and flip it on its head. That's when we fail to do something that God has clearly said we really ought to be doing. Things like what James has uh, taught his people here. James is saying, okay, now you're culpable because now going forward, you can't plead ignorance. If you make your plans without consulting God, that's failing to do something that you now know God wants you to do, and that by definition is therefore what? Sin. So it is a sin to make plans independently of the will of God. But not only that, for sure. I mean, you can name a bunch of things that James himself has mentioned in this letter. Has James said anything in this letter about controlling your tongue? All right, well, if you fail to control your tongue... The Bible says that for you becomes sin. Has James said anything in this book about caring for widows? Well, if we fail to care for the widows, we're failing to do something that God has clearly taught us to do, and that becomes sin. Has the Bible said anything about the importance of showing hospitality to all different kinds of people here in the book of James? Rich, poor, black, white, whatever the case might be, yes. So if we fail to show hospitality to everyone, then that becomes a sin of omission and it's offensive to God. So whether it has to do with 
uh, overlooking the needs of your neighbors or overlooking the needs of the poor or not showing hospitality, whatever the case might be. Those are things that are whole and good and are part of the wisdom of God and should be a part of the lives of the people of God to fail to do them, James says, is sin. This is reflected in Samuel's farewell speech to Israel in 1 Samuel, where the Bible says there in verse 23, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by what? Ceasing to pray for you. And so this is a great example of that. Samuel says, if I fail to pray for you, that becomes sin to me because that's something that I should be doing in the will of God that I would choose not to do. And so that's an important thing because Jesus said we can actually be judged not just for what we do that's counter to the will of God, but for what we don't do. When I pastored in Missouri, what now seems like forever ago, <clears throat> I pastored a little county seat town church with a parsonage that was right next door to the building in the midst of a neighborhood adjacent to the local school system. And so there were some houses behind us and we lived on the main road there. And there was a guy that lived right behind me. He was a nice guy. He was a nice neighbor, <clears throat> but he didn't go to our church. And I wasn't sure that he went to any church. And we would kind of speak across the fence in the early days of my ministry and time kind of went on. And at that time I was, you know, I looked at the entire church staff when I was shaving in the morning. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So, I mean, I didn't have any help. I had to be at every committee meeting. I had to do every hospital visit. I had to do every hen home visit, everything. You were looking at the staff. I had two young kids at home. And so you're talking about busy. That's probably as busy as I've ever been for that window of time there, just run and gun all the time. And I would always see that guy occasionally uh, out in his yard tooling around. He was an older guy. And I always thought, you know, I need to go get to know this guy. I need to go talk to this guy. But I never found time to do it. I was too busy with my own family and too busy shepherding my own church and I just had more on my plate. I had 18 plates spinning at any given one time like the guy at the circus. And one day I got the shock of my life when another neighbor came to me and told me that that gentleman that lived behind me had died suddenly in the night. And I didn't know if when he took his last breath, he went into the forever embrace of Jesus or if the Lord said to him, depart from me, I never knew you. I always had good intentions, but I never seemingly had the time to do what I knew was really the right thing to do. And I'm telling you, even as I just thought about it, I hadn't thought about that in years until I was finishing this message yesterday. And it was like the Lord did one of these on my shoulder. And he said, hey, Jim, do you remember that time that I prompted you to have a conversation with that guy and you thought tomorrow would be the best time to do it. I'm still haunted by that conversation that should have taken place that never, ever did. This is what James is talking about here and the incredible importance 
of never putting off the very good that should be done today for a better day that may never come. Let me ask you this morning, whose goals are you chasing? Whose life are you living? Whose plans are you trusting? Who's really in control of your life? The point of the passage is not that we shouldn't plan, not that we shouldn't set goals, not that we shouldn't prepare. The point of the passage is that we take our goals, our aspirations, our plans, and every part about our life and every part about our future. And it's finite, limited people whose lives are just a vapor. Humbly place all of that stuff at the feet of Jesus. Give them over to a sovereign God and then be willing to make an adjustment if and when God ever moves the goalposts and learn to make that reaction with joy knowing that God's on his throne and God's greatest desire is to bless our lives in the greatest possible way. And bottom line, for the followers of Jesus, it's his goals that we're supposed to be chasing after anyway. This is God's word. And let all who agree say, amen, amen and amen.